Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why Britain's chief claim to civilization is still the full English breakfast. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, who has never been in the same place at the same time as Lord Buckethead, and frankly, people are starting to ask questions. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our com- all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and I hope, and that should be viewed as direct order, regardless of what Donald Trump Jr. says that you will subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in perjury. Ratings actually really do matter, so please take a few seconds and give us a couple stars. If you have a few minutes extra, write a review. If you have time to tweet, you have time to write a review, and we're watching. Yes, we are, we, we are vigilant. This is what we say to you, our listeners, to make you feel comfortable listening to us. We are always watching. All right, so let's talk about uh, the biggest story of the day, uh, which is obviously that in- piece of shit New York Times top 25 movies of the 20th, 21st century so far. Um, uh, no, actually, you know what? Let's just talk about Comey. Yeah, that's fair, because somehow Mystery Alaska and Hot Tub Time Machine are not on the list, so it's all just crap. It's garbage. Uh, one thing I thought I was thinking of yesterday, um, we should maybe we'll kick it off with this, because uh, I think everything that has been analyzed about the hearing at this point has been done, and we're not going to add a whole lot to it. So it's sort of more, let's kind of look at the strategy of how the White House is reacting and how um, the opposition is also reacting. So uh, when Nixon and Clinton were uh, under investigation and, and, and you know, impeachment hearings were being looked at and all this other kind of stuff, they were both playing defense to protect their presidencies. Uh, Trump is trying to protect himself and or his businesses, and that's a pretty distinct difference um, which is also impacting the way that he's set up his entire defense enterprise run by this, I'm just going to say it, shyster attorney from New York um, who can't spell and speaks in a monotone. Yes, but that's how you know that his communications are genuine. If you have a typo <laughs> in the spelling of the word president in the first line, you know it's coming from Trump land. Fifth uh, goddamn word. That's exactly right. That's that, that's that seal of authenticity, man. Like there's There's no denying it. Uh, you know, has you know, has it botched the name Trump? Well, actually, that'd be a little bit different. That'd probably get your head chopped off. But you know, spell, misspelling the title, absolutely, that's Trump land with T. But you're absolutely right. And you know, it's interesting because you know, this is clearly about a lot of this is about protecting the about protecting Trump's business interests, and that I can only assume that that's being run by what Trump himself would refer to as his satellite associates, right? Like the people in Trump land, because Trump's primary motivation, he really seems to be decompensating. And regressing rather rapidly to a point where everything this guy does is about promoting and protecting himself and his image of himself. Now, that has more or less always been true, but he's getting decreasingly sophisticated and capable of doing that and more focused on it. Right. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, that's a big point. There was an interview this morning, uh, Friday morning, with uh, Corey Lewandowski was on uh, the Today Show with Savannah Guthrie and, and Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer, whatever people think of him, he's actually a decent interviewer. Savannah Guthrie is a she's an attorney and she's an old DC interviewer, so she really knows how to go go at things. There is a point in this two minute interview, and we'll post it on our uh, on our Taking Ship Twitter feed. She looks like she just wants to smack the bitch off of him. He like this the <laughs> level the level yeah. of bullshit that's coming out of his mouth is just galling for that that time of the morning. You yeah. know, it's this idea that the the Trump team essentially their defense is based on. One, 
the president is vindicated because Comey said that he was not under investigation. The operative word being there is was. Uh, And it amazes me that more people aren't picking up on that fact because it seems like he most certainly will be now for (laughs) obstruction of justice. Um, So that's that's part of their defense one. Our second part of defense is that Comey uh, was a bad person for leaking this stuff and to leak, which wasn't even a leak because he was legally allowed to provide notes that he took uh, that were not classified and he was no longer a, a, a federal government employee provided it to a law professor friend to provide to the New York Times in order to, as as he said in his testimony, to push the administration to appoint a special prosecutor. So it worked out pretty well for him. But they're all putting this back on, you know, the leaks are undermining us and everybody should be prosecuted for leaking. I don't see how Comey could be prosecuted for doing something that he didn't do. And their third stance that they're pushing for is um, they're already redirecting things towards the fact that Comey was irresponsible. So, for instance, they're pointing to the fact that why didn't he say anything if he felt pressured? And mm-hmm. why didn't uh, he say anything when Loretta Lynch told him to say talk about the Clinton investigation as a matter as opposed to an investigation, which was not news yesterday. Uh, as many people were posting on Twitter as this was going on, the New York Times had written about that months ago. So, again, not news. Um the, at this point, the Trump defense basically comes down to who do you believe? A career lawman with reasonably impeccable credentials, um, who is a tough, was a tough prosecutor and presumably can read a room and read a jury and read a witness or read between the lines when he's being directed by the President of the United States to do something. Or do you believe a proven craven liar? And and uh, and Comey made that point. Uh, I think in in a, in a good line of questioning from uh, Martin Heinrich at the at the hearing, essentially that that you 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 know you'd be called the be called President Trump or at least called the White House a liar several times, explicitly and implicitly implied that Trump is untrustworthy, and then made the point that you have to look at you know a, his his meaning Comey's total body of uh, of evidence and look at Trump's total body of evidence and kind of draw your own conclusions based on that. Uh, the other line of defense Republicans tossed up a little bit, which I absolutely loved, and you you alluded to, uh, is the idea that say, is the idea that he actually didn't get any dire- that Trump didn't give him a direct order, uh, that he simply that saying I hope you'll see your way to letting this go, was just an articulation of a general wish sent out into the ether that was of course not directed not a directive to the uh, to the director to the director of the FBI, uh, and that's that's sort of the. I would be worried about anyone who actually believed that uh, because it would suggest some kind of degenerative mental state. Uh, as it is, this is a pretty cynical ploy. I mean, if a bunch of big dudes roll up into your off, roll up into your, you know, into your storefront, start pawing your merchandise, get really close to you, push you around a little bit, and say, "This is a nice store you got here." Be a shame if you know there's been a rash of fires. It'd be a shame if anything were to happen to it. I sure hope that doesn't happen. They're not offering to sell you fire insurance. No, uh, and that's that's kind of how Trump went about this thing. So, and, and even if even if it's something you know far fetched, where somebody were to say, "I hope I win the lottery today," they're still pretty serious. They want to win the lottery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That so we've so it was the, the the hearing was just a series of uh, uh, was was you know a, a series of Republican lines designed to carry some water for the president. Uh, none of which I found particularly persuasive. And then we saw them from Corey Lewandowski. And can I just like. The fact that Corey Lewandowski has re-entered the picture to do crisis communications, I feel the need to paraphrase, uh, uh, you know, former mayor of Chicago Richard uh, Daly, Richard J. Daly. Uh, Corey Lewandowski is not here to create a crisis. Corey Lewandowski is here to preserve a crisis. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And you know, the, we'll say one month other thing about this, and I think we're going to start two other things, and we'll start moving on to other things. Uh, so the first thing is. 
I think that uh, whatever was said behind closed doors about Jeff Jefferson Beauregard Sessions the third uh, was probably pretty damning for uh, Comey not to do that in open session. Um, mm-hmm. w- we found out that apparently there may have been a third meeting with the Russians, and there's a question if, and that was picked up in Russian to Russian communication. So there's a question if Kislyak was just making more of you know a handshake in the hallway than than was possible. But regardless. Jeff Sessions, I mean, I made the call on Twitter yesterday, and I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable sticking with it. Between Trump already being pissed off at him and this latest little go-round of uh, his interactions with the Russians, I don't think he makes a month. Yeah, he's, I mean, uh, he, he's not in a good way. And also, I don't understand why we haven't started calling him Jeff Bo. Why we, didn't, why we haven't been doing that for months. That, that We left that on the table, and we should all feel ashamed. Maybe we should just start calling him Trey. Trey, yes, exactly. Trey, good old Trey Sessions. Oh man, Jeff Bo, Trey. You know, it all works out. Yeah, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that we'll that will that we'll just go to is the goddamn tapes. Yes. If he has fucking tapes, this none of this is an issue. And and then the argument that Kazowitz should be making is that uh, Jim Comey perjured himself in front of the Senate. He took an oath to say the whole truth. And if there are tapes demonstrating that what he said was false. Why aren't, why aren't, why aren't we listening to those last night on the news? Yeah, either there are no tapes or the tapes bear out what Comey has said, in which case Trump is a complete idiot for having said that, they, that he had them, uh, which is 100% on the table. Right, and the fact that his staff still doesn't know if they exist or not. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, she put down her Big Mac and basically said, I'll go look between the cushion, couch cushions in the, in the Oval Office. They run a tight ship over there, a very tight ship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, so we'll move on, um, but we will make one particular. We'll make two more points about the about the hearing yesterday. The first is uh, John McCain. Please um, get more sleep. I guess is that what we're saying? Yeah, dude, that was that was grim. I mean, I, we've talked about how much we despise the alt center, um, just lavishing praise on John McCain, and how despicable that is, and and how little we actually uh, like him as a politician. Uh, but that was just a sad performance. That was a sad performance by a man who, you know, is pretty much unquestionably an American hero. Um, yeah. But that was really just an 80-year-old doddering man who um, was lost and didn't know which direction to go in. And yeah, that, that, was a, that was a grim moment, and, and I, I hope that we don't see much more of that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, his staff is really going to have to crack down on him, I think. Um, we may have, That may have been the last time we see a non-hyped-up on some kind of medication John McCain for quite some time. Um, too much watching the Diamondbacks. Was there? Bad, a, there was a game on, which I'm, I'm glad because that would have been really embarrassing. <laughs> it would have been horrible. Oh no! Yeah, but it was a right. Diamondbacks Padres game, which basically everybody said was wouldn't have been a reason to stay up late. Uh, the last thing we will do before we move on is uh, we want to give you an update on the war on the war on corruption. Uh, and this mm-hmm. week, news uh, from the front. This week, unsurprisingly, the Venal Pack spotlight shines on Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, because he has no spine, and as he continues to prove, things are more important uh, than the future of the country, uh, are tax cuts and deregulation. Uh, so yesterday, his defense of Donald Trump, and this is my other favorite defense uh, that the GOP is rolling out, is he's still new. Yeah, it's it's like that day, it's like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer somehow ends up in the command of a nuclear submarine and ends up accidentally giving it to the Russians or something. And he, like the, the, the scene and like the episode ends with him surrounded by the, the armed navies of like six different countries. And he just gets up and says, I'm sorry, it's my first day. And everyone's like, oh, well, that's all right. 
Yeah, we're 140 days in, A. B, there was a transition time. C, if you were so worried about him being so shitty at this because he was new at it, why the fuck did you back him and why didn't your party get their acts together to get rid of him? Yes, but Paul Ryan, you know, for for his heroism in in taking in in establishing maybe the least credible defense I've ever heard, uh, you know, he's out there doing the hard work on the front lines of uh, the war on the war on corruption to preserve himself and his his agenda, his the Republican agenda. So, you know, I you know I salute Paul Ryan. Also, special shout out to Marco Rubio for some elite level truckling in defense of a man who treated him with abject and public contempt. Yeah, the amoeba like. Marco Rubio, who I don't know what they prop him up with to make sure that he can be sitting upright at these hearings, because there is no spine. First ballot Hall of Famer if we were to do a draft of uh, great political cowards. Yeah. Uh, does he really need the readers that he wears when, during the hearings? Or is he just trying to look smart? Who even knows? Yeah. So the Venal Pack spotlight is Paul Ryan with a runner-up for Marco Rubio. Um, right now, we're, we're going to take a quick 90-degree uh, turn. Um, we're, we don't have a guest this week, uh, partially because we didn't really want one, uh, but mostly because uh, we did want to really talk about the UK elections, which we've done in the past couple of weeks, uh, because luckily for us, Frank has a good deal of experience working in the formerly Great British Empire. Um, and we were going to have some of his uh, former colleagues on, but uh, since they've all basically been up for the last 72 hours, we decided to give them a pass. Um, so first things first, uh, talk to me about Lord Buckethead that you have now may or may not have outed me about. Yes, the, yeah, Lord Buckethead, the true, the the, the uh, breakthrough hero of last night's uh, election coverage. Uh, he's down, but he's not out. Uh, for, for, those, for those of you, for those of you who didn't, uh, who might not have been necessarily staying up late to watch uh, the election returns, I can't imagine why any of you wouldn't have done that. Um, there is when Theresa May, Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, uh, looks at his watch, looks at the headlines. Yes, still Prime Minister of Great Britain, Northern Ireland. Uh, was re-elected in her home constituency of Maidenhead. Uh, she was on stage with a wide variety of incredible people, including the brilliantly costumed Lord Buckethead. Uh, check him out on Google. He's part of a long tradition of, in British politics of people running in running in their own parties or in small, insane parties, including the terrifically named Monster Raving Looney Party, uh, which fields candidates in several seats during the course of the election. And they often have like maybe one or two serious positions and then a and, – and it could be you know like bike paths or whatever. Like I mean this is not necessarily big stuff. And then a manifesto filled with just jokes. Yeah, he yeah. wants to nationalize Adele. Yeah, um, so yeah it's that kind of he stuff. He wants a firm public commitment to build the $100 billion renewal of the Trident weapons system followed by an equally firm private commitment not to build it. There's secret <laughs> submarines. No one will even know. No one will know. Yeah, that's 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 really fun. So it's this kind of stuff, right? Like there's an almost there's an almost parody of British politics, and if you're willing to pay, every candidate has to pay a deposit in order to be, uh, to, you know, they have to pay a few hundred pounds in order to get on the ballot. If they don't get a certain number of votes, they lose their deposit. Most of these pe these people always lose their deposits, but they do it anyway. So that's where Lord Buckethead came from. Check him out on Google; he's awesome. Yeah, and uh, the only other two parts of his, everybody should, we'll post the uh, manifesto on our, our Twitter, but uh, two of the other ones I particularly like is Katie Hopkins to be banished to the Phantom Zone. Mm -hmm. Presume that's an ex-girlfriend of some kind. Uh, uh, no, Katie, Katie Hopkins is a uh, super right-wing uh, columnist. Oh, even better. And uh, prospective MPs to live in the seat they wish to represent for at least five years before election to improve local See, there, representation in Parliament. Yeah, and there's your serious position, actually. Um, and so, so that's that's this is a really good example of that tradition in politics where you'll have like you'll, they'll have like one serious position and then a bunch of just like a bunch of a bunch of funny stuff. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's a lot of fun. Not all heroes wear capes. That one does. 
uh, check them out. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's dive into this a little bit more. Um, first off, uh, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks of trying to figure out what was going on. Labor was dead. Conservatives were going to roll. Labor was never going to exist again. Scotland was going to be independent. Ireland was unclear. Uh, so, Frank, what the fuck happened? So what the fuck happened was this. Uh, when the election, when Theresa May called the election, her numbers, her leadership advantage over uh, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labor Party, the uh, party advantage uh, that she that uh, conservatives enjoyed over um, over Labor was so large that a lot of people, including I, and I mean, I've said it on this podcast, basically looked at this and thought, "My God, like this this could be an historic defeat." That did not uh, that did not pan out. Uh, in fact, uh, it was quite the opposite. Uh, the uh, you know, I won't go into this. And you can there, there's you can look up the the actual numerical results. It's pretty easy to see. But basically, the conservatives lost seats rather than gaining a, a, you know the kind of major rather than gaining what they expected. And the when the campaign began, the kind of majority that could guarantee them ten more years of government. Um, they lost seats and actually are no longer able to form a part, form a government based on the number of seats they have. Uh, so there's sort of, and that was, so the conservatives lost seats. Um, the Scottish national party lost seats in Scotland to a number of, uh, and to all, weirdly enough to conservatives, which is unheard of. Uh, the conservative party historically has done very, very poorly or been a non-factor in Scottish politics. That period is over. They are now very much on the scene. Uh, led by a you know a very capable and a very charismatic uh, Scottish uh, Conservative uh, Party leader named uh, Ruth Davidson, so Scott so Conservatives won in Scotland. They lost big in uh, England, and they lost almost entire and and they lost exclusively in England to Labour, uh, and they also they lost some of the uh, the seats they picked up in 2015 in places like Wales. So bad night for Conservatives, very good night for Labour. Comparatively speaking, uh, Conservatives still uh, the largest party. Uh, and, and that was sort of driven by three big phenomena. The first was the absolute destruction of UKIP. Uh, UKIP was the, the United Kingdom Independence Party, the primary drivers and supporters of Brexit. Uh, and the, there was a question in this election. We all sort of knew that this election would be an inflection point for where these UKIP supporters, primarily, although not exclusively by any means, but primarily white working class voters, a lot of them had been uh, labor voters who left labor uh, and contributed first to uh, labor's defeat in 2010 and then significantly to labor's defeat in 2015, there was a real question about what would happen with them. And and there was a, a theory, and this was clearly what was behind, uh, I think this is clearly part of the conservative strategy, was the idea that UKIP was going to serve as a portal from the labor party to the conservative party for those voters. That is to say, they would go from labor to UKIP and then they would go to the conservative party permanently. Um, and instead, those people, they're called Kippers, uh, the UKIP folks, uh, the UKIPers, the Kippers came home. Uh, they went back to their home parties. A bunch of them did, in fact, go to the conservatives, but they didn't defect en, en masse. There were uh, constituencies where the Kippers went broke toward the conservatives two to one. Uh, you know, so two, you know, for, you know, every two that went to the conservatives, one would go back to labor. That seems like a lot, but the, but in order to have gotten the historic victory that the conservatives were anticipating, the Kippers would have had to have broken four or even five to one. And there was data to suggest that might've happened. Uh, a bunch of them instead went home to, went home to labor, uh, and really bolstered labor. And you, you could see this, uh, you know, across constituency after constituency where the UKIP vote would completely fall apart and its number would be, you know, you'd have UKIP that would fall by, say, 16 percent and conservatives would gain 8 percent and labor would gain 8 percent. It was really a, it was a really quite stark. Yeah, I, wonder so that if, was the I wonder if there's some lessons to be learned there about where Trump voters may wind up when Trump's no longer on the ballot. 
I think this is a great question, uh, and I've been sort of musing on that, and I think we'll have to dig a little bit deeper into it. Here's the real – here's what I think happened there is – and we can, we'll talk about Brexit in a little bit. But the, the Brexit was for UKIP was, was its apotheosis and its destruction, right? Like UKIP existed to get the Brexit vote on the books and you know, conducted and passed, which they did, and then everyone went home. And the question is, you know, that was a an obvious cathartic event for UKIP supporters, and then they were able to go back and and it just being basically what it showed is that being UKIP is not the same thing as being politically right wing across the board. The question is, does voting for Donald Trump indicate? Is it possible that voting for Donald Trump is the same the same way that it doesn't indicate being right wing across the board? But rather looking for some kind of political catharsis that was driven by a right, but by a specifically right wing agenda. Yeah, uh, that's entirely possible. But we're going to need some more research on that. Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable positing that hypothesis. Yeah, it's it's definitely one to one to watch, and I think one we need to explore. So it, the so that was the, the what happened last night was driven by uh, the kippers behaving the way I just described. Uh, youth turnout actually, like young people, did in fact turn out to vote. There was a joke. Um, that all the young people who didn't vote last year in the Brexit election came out this time. Uh, there's some truth to that. Uh, it's it's not as simple as that. Uh, a lot of them were very positively motivated by the labor leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but young folks did, in fact, vote. Turnout was quite high. And then the third factor is uh, the Conservative Party, led by Theresa May, completely botched this. I mean, this was as as bad a, a this is as bad a piece of political leadership as the Brits have seen since King John. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of the things you mentioned, and I want to follow up on this because uh, I feel like there was not a great deal of time or attention um, paid to Labour and Jeremy Corbyn uh, beforehand because it was looked at um, that he was just going to get shellacked. But one of the things you mentioned is that it was a good night for him. This was the third loss in a row for Labour. How in the hell is that a win? That's a good. That's that's a fair question because they again they ended up they gained seats, but they ended up in a position where they they realistically couldn't cobble together a working majority. Uh, even even the most rainbow of rainbow coalitions wouldn't have given them a shot of forming a government. How does that result look like a win? First, anytime you gain seats is technically a good thing. But largely it's because of context uh, that you know this for a while looked like an historic defeat. Uh, to have actually gained seats, uh, to have really given the conservatives a black eye, uh, that's, a, that's a big deal. And also it puts the conservatives in a tough spot. They're not going to be able to run the Brexit that they thought they would. Uh, right. And that for a political reason, that that's, that's a, you know, that's a really good thing. I mean, and it, it's, this is something that's worth saying, like there are very legitimate critiques of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, it's not clear if he can put together a future majority based on his own politics. Um, he doesn't tell a, a political story, which is, I think, something a good political leader does. Um, he doesn't tell a good story for Britain and for his own politics, but he sort of sees the world as a, as a static conflict between capital and labor, as a very sort of classically Marxist way of looking at things, which is not especially motivating. Um, and more prosaically, I can think of the way that the party has been run under his leadership. There are seats that labor could and should have won last night and didn't. Uh, if because they drummed out a good candidate in favor of more Corbyn-friendly lefties, so his mm, leadership seems like, awesome kind of similar to stupid ass shit that Democrats are going to do here. It's not, yeah, it's not unknown. Uh, there, there is a parallel there. Uh, but I will say this for Corbyn in terms of why this, this, this is a, there's something positive to look at here. Corbyn offered a not especially radical manif- manifesto. It was you know soft left stuff for the most part, and he looked very good in comparison with Theresa May. And I think if we're looking for something that, for something good to say here. You know, there's going to be criticism of Corbyn. There's going to be, which you know, again, the man just did a, the man just won a bunch of seats for Labour. Let's give credit where due. 
there will be future questions about the few, about the about the Labour Party's direction under him. But there's something really encouraging here, which is Theresa May thought she was going to the country for an election in a smaller and meaner and more scared country than she was, and she paid the price. I mean, uh, you know, Corbyn offered a a warmer vision of Britain, and he picked up seats, and Brits Brits chose that. That is, I think, to the credit of uh, of Britain and credit to him. So uh, we've crapped on Corbyn a little bit, although giving him credit where it's due, potentially. I mean, still a little bit of a terrorist sympathizer, but we'll let that go for the time being. Let's move on to May. Um, just how stupid is the Conservative Party? They called for the Brexit vote and lost, and they called for these early elections, and although didn't lose, certainly uh, were not, did not get what they were after. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, another way to phrase it would be, uh, how stupid is Theresa May? And also, the, answer, yes. the answer is a lot to vary. Uh, I mean, the decision to call the early election made a degree of sense. I mean, there was some some data to suggest that they were really in a position, some data that, that suggested very strongly that they were in a, in a position to genuinely crush the Labour Party, uh, give her the majority that she wanted to, that would allow them to be in power for 10 years. Uh, you know, it, elections are risky things that, may, that ultimately was proven to, to have been a, a mistake. Uh, but you can make an argument that at least that it showed a you know a degree of aggression that made sense at the time. The conduct of the campaign was completely absurd. Uh, that was the part where the, that really indicts uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party and and particularly Theresa May. Right, she uh, wasn't doing debates. The manifesto they right. rolled out was stale. Yeah, this is, it was it was stale, but it and it was stale go in in the sense that it was uh, it was a throwback. To an older and and much more uh, poisonous type of conservatism, where uh, you know one of the things that Theresa May had done quite well, and David Cameron actually made a pretty good fist of this too during his uh, seven year tenure, that uh, that Cam- that uh, or six and a half year tenure, that one of the things that Cameron did um, or that Theresa May did fairly well was rhetorically uh, occupying ground that uh, occupying political ground that had been that had been a kind of centrist labor position. So things like caps on energy prices. So, you know, you'll never have to pay more than a certain amount for energy in any given year. Tories at all had never been for that sort of thing because it interfered with the market. Uh, Theresa May is in favor of it. It's small bore stuff, but it was the kind of the kind of centrist positions that allowed them to take a chunk sort of symbolically out of out of labor. Uh, she'd been really good about talking about this. So I think we talked about this last time. Think a little bit of it in terms of like she was pretty good at talking compassionate conservatism. Let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, but this but one of the oddities about British politics is <clears throat> occasionally it will throw up a, a prime minister who has never actually done a national election of any kind. Because, you know, again, these they're, they've fought their constituencies as MPs, obviously. But a lot of these places are quite small. I mean, you're talking about, you know, in some cases – electorates of, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people, sometimes even smaller than that. Uh, and as a result, you can be prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and never had more than 25,000 people vote for you specifically, uh, which is which is an oddity unto itself. Now, most of most party leaders in the modern era have fought a national uh, leadership campaign, at least recently. Uh, Corbyn's done it twice. Uh, he fought a leadership election in 2015 and 2016. Both of them were national across Labour's uh, n- nationwide membership. Cameron fought one. Miliband fought one. Uh, Ed Miliband fought one, as did David, although that one didn't go quite as well for him. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, all of these guys have fought, mo- they've all fought national leadership campaigns. And as a result, they are some, at least marginally tested. These are small, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of voters spread across an entire country. 
But nonetheless, um, you know, they've, they've had the experience of framing themselves as candidates to a much larger audience than their constituency. Theresa May hadn't done that. By the time uh, her, by the time the conservative leadership election uh, to succeed David Cameron actually went to the uh, conservative membership, all of her other candidates had either all of her all of her opponents, excuse me, all of her opponents had either killed themselves uh, or killed each other. And as a result, she was uh, she didn't have to do one of these big sort of national barnstorming tours. And you would say if she were a political athlete, uh, you'd say we didn't have much film on her. We don't really know what she's like in this circumstance. Uh, And as as a result, I think that that was reflected in in some of her poor political judgment. Uh, Symbolic of that was uh, the decision to start talking about fox hunting. I mean, this is someone who wanted, Theresa May wanted this election to be about Brexit, about the need to push through Brexit, to push it through with a larger conservative majority. Uh, And then essentially right out of the gate, they started talking about fox hunting and released this draconian uh, manifesto, and suddenly the election became about everything but Brexit. And also, she just she had a, a liability that does not extend to Jeremy Corbyn, which is, it seems like the more people saw of her, the less they liked her. Uh, and that's that's you know, a general you know hot you know hot tip for all of our future candidates out there. Uh, if the more people see of you, the less they like you, you're in trouble. And that's not right. true of Corbyn. To his credit, uh, you know, Corbyn is used to doing these national these national elections. Again, he's done two leadership elections in the last two years. He's used to you know going around giving speeches to people, glad handing all of that kind of stuff. He's good at it. He seems to enjoy it, uh, and that it was in stark contrast to uh, Theresa May, who was you know being taken to these small locations, primarily speaking to uh, sympathetic audiences, and then who, as you as you re- referred to earlier, actually ducked the debate, sent a representative Amber Rudd instead. So you had all of the other leaders and you know a representative of the Tory leader. And, you know, and this is just this is actually a, a genuine piece of advice for any of our listeners who are thinking about running for office ever. Uh, you will never be too good for the democratic process. And any decision not to be part of a debate is going to look like you think you're too good for the democratic process. That's you. That that is someone who is thinking about their opponent and how they want their opponent to look, not how they want to look to their voters. And that is always a risk. And she paid a very dear price for that. Right. So, I mean. We've sort of outlined a lot of the problems that uh, she bring, brought to the table uh, and continues to bring to the table. So, how is she actually holding on to power? She uh, went poor, to the, she went to the Queen today, asked mm-hmm. permission to form a government. So presumably, she thinks she's still in. Yeah, she's how is she hanging on to power? Poorly and not for long would be my guess. Um, so there are 650 seats in Parliament. So in theory, the, in the House of Commons. So in theory, the magic number that you need is 326 uh, to pass a, a budget, to pass a piece of legislation. In point of fact, because Sinn Féin doesn't take their seats, they abstain from, ta- to, from, uh, from taking their seats in Westminster because uh, that would require that they take a loyal, a, an oath of loyalty to the Queen, which they will not. Um, you actually only need uh, 323, 324 seats to pass legislation. Uh, the Conservatives have 318 seats. So they actually had a small but workable majority before this election. They lost that majority. Now they have 318. They've entered into uh, a, a deal with the, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland who have 10 MPs. Uh, so to, but who will the, you know, that's, this is not, they're not forming a government in the sense that the DUP isn't going to hold ministerial posts. This is what's called a supply and confidence arrangement, which is to say the DUP will vote for some of the conservatives, key pieces of legislation, uh, and, and will help, will stand with them in the question of that. There's a, a vote of no confidence in the house. Uh, and, and that will give the conservatives plus the DUP 328 votes. That's barely enough. 
to pass anything. Like you have to have all, you have to have, you know, essentially your entire caucus has to be rock solid and the DUP has to be rock solid. Uh, and even then you're only winning by four. There's very, very slim margin there. And it raises the question of just how functional this whole thing is going to be. Yeah, sounds very familiar to something is going on here if you think about the Freedom Caucus as an entirely separate party from the Republican Party at this point. But That's, a, um, that's right. And, and, the, and the comparative closeness uh, is, you know, is fair. I mean, the closer this is the this is why, uh, you know, things this is going to be pretty awkward for for Theresa May. Because when you have, you know, very slim majorities uh, that you, you really need to whip your people a lot to get your to get the majority that you need, that actually makes you more beholden to the extremists because they come from, you know, slightly they come they typically come from very, very safe seats uh, and they will pay no price if your legislative agenda fails. Uh, and so they can hold your feet to the fire and get exactly what they want. So it actually makes you – you would think that having a slim majority would make you more centrist. It can actually make you more extremist. Yeah, which is exactly what we see with uh, Netanyahu in Israel. Same Absolutely. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's kind of run through some of the other major players right now. Um, where does labor go now? Uh, the neckbeard and tweed guy um, this with is him in power, where, where, where does he take it all? This is a really interesting question. Uh, so they're back you – know, they're back in opposition with an expanded, uh, with an expanded minority – uh, he, the Labor Party is is now firmly Jeremy Corbyn's. Uh, he will lead them into the next election, whenever that is. Uh, if the governing coalition falls apart, he will lead them into that one. Uh, if somehow the Conservative and DUP alliance makes it five years, which I, I would suggest is not the way to bet, uh, he will lead them into that as well. Uh, so he's he's seen off his internal enemies with the showing. The concern that I would have is it is not clear to me that Corbyn's politics and, – and again, I gave credit where, where, where due here. And I think a lot of the – a lot of what we saw in the increased turnout and, and labor doing better is a direct result of a more wholehearted embrace of a of – a, again, what, what is in fact not a radical left, a pretty soft left uh, manifesto. Not actually all that different from what Ed Miliband ran on in 2015. Uh, but Corbyn seems to – Corbyn took a few more lefty positions and seemed to sell a little bit harder. Uh, and then there's we'll come to the question of Brexit and the effect that, that had in a minute. I have doubts about whether Corbyn and the Labour Party can take advantage of this to build a genuine working majority. Uh, I actually don't see Corbyn's politics as being the politics of a of a workable majority in Parliament. Uh, you know, I mean, it's very possible that I'll be that I'll be proven wrong. It wouldn't be the first time in the last couple of years. Good Lord. Uh, but I think, you know, for the most part, Corbyn got here by vowing to take the party to the left, benefiting from some new membership rules. He has done that. Uh, I don't know what the second act is. And the concern that I would have is I don't know that Corbyn and his inner circle do either, because, again, like good Marxists, they tend to have a fairly static view. There is the class war. There will always be the class war between capital and labor. Now this, now we're just going to keep fighting the same war. Uh, maybe it'll work, but I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. So that kind of brings up another idea, and, and, and I know some probably some of our British listeners don't like the fact that I'm continuously drawing these analogies back to uh, American politics, but I think it actually helps our American pol uh, listeners, both of them, um, understand the British politics a little bit better, um, even though the, you know they're inexact analogies. But in terms of kind of where Corbyn is and, and May, is this one of these kind of like Bernie-Hillary thing, meaning that like Corbyn won by losing? Meaning the same way that Bernie got in and was kind of this uh, barn burner and he was, I mean, he's still, again, we say this almost on a weekly basis at this point, Bernie Sanders is still not a Dem member of the Democratic National Party. Um, but just by being a part of the dialogue, he moved the entire party in a different direction. 
I think that's right. I, I think that whatever happens, if you look at the leadership contests in the leadership contest for the Labor Party in 2015, uh, Corbyn was treated, first of all, he was treated as an outside oddball. Uh, his, his odds at being elected leader opened at 200 to 1. Uh, his politics were sort of, you know, procedurally he had, in order to be even uh, added to the ballot, he had to have support from a certain number of sitting members of parliament who were Labour Party, who were from the Labour Party. Uh, he got those because no one was taking him seriously. They thought, well, you know, I'll support Jeremy Corbyn because we should have a robust debate uh, because he'll be an interesting little sideshow. But really what's going to happen is we're going to go back to the center. They thought Ed Miliband was too far to the left. What's really going to happen is we're going to go back to the center, you know, go back to some of the, you know, the, the you know, the new labor ideas and, and policies and rhetoric of, you know, the of their of the last five years, particularly of new labor government. Uh, and, you know, and Corbyn, we're going to and he'll just disappear like so much morning fog. And instead, he just caught fire. He won that election. Uh, and then he came back uh, and then he came. And the idea was, well, that was some sort of weird aberration. So we're going to do this again. Uh, and he won again. Uh, and and the issue there was so I think it is now and based on the results of this election, if there are people in the Labor Party who don't think they need to take leftist and leftist politics and the leftist wing of the Labor Party seriously in order to build a future governing majority uh, and think they can just cobble together a centrist majority from within the Labor Party and then win an election on that basis, they're fooling themselves. Uh, lefty politics are are going to be part of the next progress, you know, seriously lefty politics are going to be part of the next progressive governing uh, government of Britain whenever that comes. There's no question about it. In the same way that we're still going through that, this kind of, you know, agonizing process here where we're, you know, there's, you know, you know, settling of scores and airing of grievances and all this other stuff between sort of the Bernie and Hillary wings of the party. Uh, neither of those wings is going to be able to to run and is going to be able to run and win a presidential election without the other. Uh, and and the fact and of course you would assume there was a sort of theory that the Hillary wing could potentially do that without uh, without the Bernieites. That's just we you know we saw far that that is not a safe bet. Whoever is able to generate a, a you know a significant political mandate is going to require the far is going to require the genuine like farther left of the American political spectrum as well as the kind of leftist liberal. Uh, centrist part of the Democratic Party. So in that sense, yeah, the conversation has definitely moved left as a result of both these guys. Yeah. So speaking of uh, people fooling themselves or just being fools themselves, uh, what about Boris Johnson? What about uh, uh, everybody's, you know, for a while, everybody's second favorite uh, big city mayor after Mike Bloomberg, um, now just a raving lunatic with a bad haircut. Uh, yes, that is that is that is a reasonable characterization. Foreign Secretary as well, uh, <clears throat> you know Boris Johnson. Uh, the the Conservative Party, Conservative Party's relationship with its leaders is best characterized as outright murderous. Uh, they the Conservative Party delights in murdering its leaders at the earliest opportunity. Um, they do it with a, a, a you know, a, a regularity that would have, you know, impressed some of the smaller sultanates and caliphates during the, you know, dur- you know, during the, you know, the middle ages. I mean, they, these are, these people really like to knock off the top guy. Uh, she was meant to, you know, she called this election on her own steam. It went horrifically wrong. The labor party is in worse position, is in a worse position than they ever have been. And then they are, sorry, the conservative party is in a worse position uh, than they have been for a while. Uh, they're going to toss her overboard. It's just a, it is. They probably won't do it soon, um, 
they're tired. They need to sort of reconfigure. Uh, they need to get a sense of what Brexit is going to look like and so forth. Um, Brexit negotiations begin next week. Uh, but as, as, as soon as the, you know, as soon as an opportune moment arrives, they are going to toss her just right in the drink. Uh, and there is a very good chance that Boris Johnson will be, A, the person who gives her, it used to be called a Jonah's lift in the Navy, uh, that, it'll be, uh, that Boris Johnson will be the person who helps give her that Jonah's lift. lift. And uh, despite the implosion of his own leadership race last time, he could very well emerge as the next leader of the Conservative Party and the next prime minister. Right. So everybody should just take a beat and consider that uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson will be the holders of the special relationship in the yes, next future, yeah. probably. Oh, get, get ready for it. Get ready yeah. for it. And, if you, uh, if you, because every, understand this, good people. This is dumb. This is, we are living in the dumbest timeline. The dumbest thing that can possibly happen in politics will happen and sooner than you think. Right. And Biff didn't even need the sports journal to figure this all out. This is just happening. That's exactly right. Bet on uh, the dumps.com. You mentioned Brexit, and uh, let's talk about this kind of briefly because, uh, you know, you and I have been yakking for a while, and without a guest, I assume people get bored of us. Um, but what does this mean for Brexit? Presumably, one of the reasons that May went ahead with this, one of the stated reasons, was that she wanted to build up a stronger majority so that uh, the, Brexit, the Brexit negotiations and exit would be easier to do. Uh, it now seems like the exact opposite is the case. And these negotiations, as you mentioned, start next week. That's right. She's, she is perched on the horns of a furious dilemma here. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, when you have a very slim uh, parliamentary majority, uh, it, it actually tends to empower the extremists. Uh, the extremists in this case are people who want a very hard Brexit. Uh, so she's, she's stuck between them and her necessary allies in the Br- DUP. Hard, hard Brexit, meaning we're the fuck out. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Good luck, guys. <laughs> you know, you know, no, no meaningful trade arrangements, no meaningful movement of people, no meaningful currency. Like, I mean, just, you know, we are, you know, we're gone. Let, we're gone. Let us know how it goes. It'd be, it would be as if, uh, uh, as if China just, just cropped up off the coast of, uh, of the United Kingdom, you know, like they have right. that, it's like that kind of relationship, right? Right. Like just, and, just no meaningful institutional ties. And, trade my, goes, and, but like, and, and my understanding is that once the, um, what is it? Uh, the 25th, whatever the thing is called, the, they activated whatever the policy Article part of the 50. EU. Article 50. I was halfway there. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> right. You're thinking, of, you're thinking of the 25th Amendment. You're not the only one. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll maybe we should talk about that also. But uh, let's stick with uh, the other side of the pond right now. Uh, once Article 50 was uh, enacted and Theresa May signed all that paperwork in the big ceremony a few weeks ago, submitted it to the EU, there is no going back. All the other EU countries have to essentially unanimously uh, allow the UK to tear the paperwork up, is my understanding. Yeah, I, this, I, the idea that Brexit is somehow going to be undone, I think, is just, it, that's, that's not happening. It is, that is, it, Brexit will occur. Uh, the problem for, again, for May is she's got these extremists within her own party who are pushing for the hardest possible Brexit, be damned to you all, Britain's going its own way. Uh, and then her necessary allies in the DUP are quite uh, interested in a soft Brexit for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which is there's there are compelling reasons why uh, representatives from Northern Ireland might want the Republic of Ireland not to be viewed as a 100% foreign country uh, with all of the uh, attendant border issues that would come along with that. Uh, so along with having almost uh, – so you know, if we're sort of going over the yeah, – uh, Something tells you know, the, me that has not worked well in the past. That's exactly right. If you're <laughs> sort of going over the greatest hits of the conservative government over the last seven years, they almost ended the – uh, you, they almost ended the acts of union between Scotland and the United Kingdom, or between Scotland and England. They did turf out um, 
Uh, they did get, they did break the international order that was the dream of Winston Churchill, and they might be restarting the troubles. Uh, so it's been a pretty good innings for the conservatives, I think you have to say. So anyway, they've got – and the DUP is also absolutely 100 percent adamant that Northern Ireland will not have a special uh, designation post – uh, post Brexit, whatever the UK, whatever the, whatever works for Northern Ireland is going to be what, you know, whatever Northern Ireland's arrangement post Brexit is, is going to be the same arrangement that the rest of the UK has, and they are pushing for a softer Brexit. So, I mean, it's possible this thing could fall apart right out of the gate. Uh, we'll we'll just have to see. But this is not. I mean, this this has really thrown a wrench into what was already a pretty chaotic process. So I've got another question on Brexit, but you you touch on one thing that sort of brings up brings to mind uh, two questions. One, uh, what does this mean in terms of Scottish independence? And what does this potentially mean for Northern Ireland, Ireland, Scottish uh, independence? So Scottish independence, I, I would have said, but for one thing, I would have said this uh, makes Scottish uh, independence marginally more likely. Uh, they were sort of, if, if, if the conservatives had won a handy, handy victory. So the important thing to, to remember here is Northern Ireland and Scotland both voted remain and, and both 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 voted remain in the Brexit election pretty strongly. Uh, if the Conservatives had won a, a giant majority and pushed through um, and and pushed through both uh, Brexit and austerity, I would say it's it, there was a decent chance that the Scots would move forward with another independence referendum. However, uh, that has not happened. Uh, the Scot and the Scottish National Party lost a bunch of seats and they lost them to the Conservatives. Uh, and the conservatives are largely, uh, in fact, I think ex- pretty much exclusively unionist. And as a result, it looks like the Overton window on Scottish independence might actually be closing now uh, as the SNP loses some of its political capital. And, you know, it's possible, you know, if you sort of dig into the way some of these constituencies came back last night, it's very possible that labor might pick up more seats. And, you know, Scotland was a traditional labor heartland, not unforeseeable that labor could mount some kind of comeback there. So I think that the political capital needed to pull up, um, to pull together a, uh, you know, to, to pull up and execute a, an independence referendum might not be there, but it depends on what the terms of Brexit are and what the effect, what effect it has on Scotland. Right. So that's and, and Northern yeah. Ireland, are, are they jonesing to get out? I, I, I don't really know. I mean, that's, that's... There's, there's a lot, as, you know, as I start singing various, uh, various marching <laughs> songs from both sides. No, I mean, there's, you know, the people who, let me put it this way, the people who, the people who sit in Westminster, so there are 10 MPs from the Democratic Unionist Party. These are, I mean, it's in the name, they're unionists. Seven uh, from Sinn Féin, uh, and then one, one uh, independent. You know, so you can see, like, so those are the people they return to Westminster, reasonably evenly split, tends to favor the DUP. Uh, the uh, Northern Irish Assembly was based on a power-sharing agreement between Sinn Féin and the DUP. Uh, that fell apart uh, in, earlier this year. They had an election in March that returned uh, that returned where the DUP lost a bunch of seats. They now have a, uh, a majority of one over Sinn Féin. Uh, no new. So basically, basically the the storm. What it's, it's called Stormont is where the uh, the Northern Irish Assembly meets. That's basically been mothballed until after this election. So it doesn't actually presently have a functioning legislature, uh, and it's not clear what effect this is going to have on that. So, but one thing is one thing is very clear. I mean, Northern Ireland is not going anywhere. They had that referendum years ago. It's going to stay. Uh, and what its future is in terms of local power sharing and what this means for Brexit is not entirely clear. Uh, basically, Northern Ireland is all fucked up. So, you know, analysis from, you know, the 14th century onward, basically. Yeah, well done on that. 
so let's do uh, one last question on the election, and then um, we can talk a little bit of the, the polling strategy. Um, but a- as we sort of mentioned earlier, that the, you know, the DUP is going to be this very small part of the government, but they're essentially going to make the government. So do they run the United Kingdom now? Uh, but sure, let's say they do. Uh, you know, it's. I actually think, in, in some very specific respects, they will. I mean, the, the, they're they're an odd. God, are they an odd bunch? Um, I mean, the DUP. So this is a party that was founded by Ian Paisley, a very conservative. Uh, you know, roots in what we would sort of consider, uh, you know, Protestant extremists. Uh, you know, very socially conservative. Hundred percent anti-gay marriage. Hundred percent anti-choice. Uh, so there's you know there's a very sort of retrograde um, social conservatism to them. Uh, mo- a lot of their uh, governing agenda is actually fairly tech forward. Uh, you know it's sort of you know it doesn't it melds reasonably well with uh, melds reasonably well with what the with the conservative party everything else being equal. Um, and they've the funny part of it is so what what their price for supporting uh, the conservatives right now. Is you know I think they're probably going to use their leverage uh, to get a kind of to get a soft Brexit and one that again makes sure that Northern Ireland has the same Brexit arrangement that the rest of the UK has, which is very important to them. There may be some other cosmetic stuff. Back when it looked like they might be joining, when you know we sort of thought there was going to be a you know a series of potential coalitions in 2015, which turned out not to be the case. Uh, they had a few demands, uh, and a lot of it was pretty small bore stuff. Uh, you know, when when Brits compete internationally, they wear a uh, a little armband that shows GB for Great Britain. Uh, they want the the DUP wants that changed to UK. Uh, so it's pretty mi- you know pretty mild aesthetic stuff like that. In some cases, they've also and this is my absolute favorite thing. They've been they've been militating for first a study and then the execution of a project to build a bridge or a tunnel to Scotland. Uh, from from Northern Ireland. So basically, well, the part that I love is that, you know, after all of this, like this is the part that was founded by Ian Paisley. Whiskey drinkers the world around yeah, celebrate the idea. Oh yeah, that you could stagger from you know from from Bushmills to uh, to Le, you know to Lefroy or Oban. Yeah, no, no, no uh, more seasickness or that, that's flight, exactly, flight sickness. It's a beautiful. That's thing. exactly right. I'm on board. Uh, yeah, you can drink <laughs> as much whiskey as you want and drive to Scotland. That sounds yeah. like a terrific idea. Uh, you know, but so basically, you're talking about. I mean, part of me loves that. Like after all of these points of sectarian principle that have been exchanged, it's possible that at least at one point they could have been bought off for a multi-billion-dollar infrastructure project. You know, which is which is so, and that that still might happen now. But I think the leverage they're going to use is probably on uh, is probably on Brexit. Here's the wrinkle in this thing, though: they absolutely hate Jeremy Corbyn, just hate him because of his uh, years of sympathy for Irish Republicans and Catholics in the North, including some uh, you know public appearances with Jerry Adams and and other Sinn Fein representatives who were also members of the IRA. Uh, so that's you know they they hate Corbyn and it's possible that you could see a game of brinksmanship between the Conservative Party and um, and the DUP pop up where you know we're going to do a hard Brexit you know no you're not we're not going to let you do that it has to be a soft Brexit oh yeah well if you don't if you don't vote for us or vote for this and vote for us then you're risking Jeremy Corbyn so this is going to be a real happy marriage awesome yeah, <laughs> yeah all right so. Is, yeah. Let's do. Let's let's touch a little bit on the on the polling uh, because after um, the Scottish referendum, which was an incredibly close vote, um, and Brexit, which was incredibly close, and most post, almost all pollsters called wrong. Uh, this election uh, had pollsters not really sure which direction was going to go, and a lot of it banked on uh, participation. Plus, you know, as we've sort of mentioned over the weeks, 
the Brits have had a lot of big elections over in a very short period of time, and that's pretty exhausting for anyone. I mean, essentially, think about the uh, Iowa caucuses for six years straight. Um, but uh, Nate Silver and uh, Lordy, because I'm using that word because it's in, vo- it's in vogue this week. Oh, Lordy. Um, oh, Lordy, help us for quoting him. Uh, he made a point that pollsters can be excused for getting the outcome wrong uh, when voters fail to turn out. It's hard to necessarily predict when they come out. I mean, you build your models and you kind of have a dropout percentage. Like anybody who's planning an event knows that, you know, 10% of the people aren't going to show up. So you can kind of build that in. Um, but it's a whole other thing for them to get it wrong when voters say they are going to turn out. Like, I'm going to vote tomorrow, and the pollster to say, I don't believe you. And then they show up anyway. And therefore, yeah. then, then they got it wrong because of that. And, um, you know, looking at kind of all the polling leading up to th- this week, and you and I have had some uh, offline conversations about this that we don't need to share with our with our four listeners. But um, how does that all kind of flow out in terms of where the polling was right, where there was polling was wrong, who got it right, who got it wrong, why they got it right, why, why somebody else got it wrong? Yeah, this was this was an odd one. British polls, just to to say this at the top, it's it's harder to poll there. The variance is greater, uh, in part because uh, you know you can you can poll the national mood, but there are you know six hundred and fifty constituencies. Now, not all of them are one hundred percent up for grabs, but you're talking about hundreds of constituencies that in theory could be, I mean, you know, there's like 65, 70 frontline constituencies, you know, more than a hundred of them that can be potentially, uh, that, you know, in a, in a, in a swing election or in a big, you know, in a big election, uh, could change hands and you just can't pull them all individually. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a real challenge. So getting, getting it methodologically, this is one of the reasons why there's so much variance, uh, in British polling. All of that said, uh, you know, the, a lot of the British polling firms have been pretty, um, pretty you know, a little, little bit shy. Uh, you know, the Scottish referendum was a tough one to get right. As you mentioned, Brexit uh, didn't turn out the way a lot of people expected it to. The 2015 general didn't turn out the way a lot of people expected it to. number of prominent polling firms didn't see Jeremy Corbyn coming. Uh, so, like, there have been all of these surprises that have popped up. Uh, the, a, couple of, a couple of firms deserve some credit here. Uh, the exit poll uh, that came out, the BBC's exit poll, which I think is run by Servation, uh, you know, it's the snap poll comes out at, uh, at 10 p.m. Uh, British time. Uh, the exit poll was was uh, pretty much spot on. Uh, it was very very accurate. It usually is, uh, but this this time there was a lot more variable. They did variance. They did a good job. Uh, the firm that I think is getting the most cr- uh, praise and should get it, I think at this point, is YouGov. Uh, they they did a poll a week before, uh, maybe ten days before the election, that showed a hung parliament. Uh, it showed the conservatives up by three points in a hung parliament. They a lot of people looked at that thing cockeyed, uh, and they had to, their method. They had a, a different methodological approach there. That did um, uh, so. What was it? it was multivariable regression, uh, and uh, and that that sure. Has, yeah, sure. Most multivariable regression and post and, and post stratification. That's uh, MRP. Uh, and that that one actually that model held up incredibly well. Um, so they they kind of got so YouGov and uh, and the BBC's Servation exit poll were the ones that really really came out well. A number the the point that Nate Silver made and it's worth bringing up to our listeners is a lot of the polling firms showed the same showed very similar raw data, and a bunch of them just messed with their turnout filters so that it, the so that the conservative uh, party would appear to have the lead. That they, the pollsters, thought they should, uh, and so this, and and that's, 
at, at some level, it's hard to blame them. Uh, you know, you don't want to publish the poll that's 100% just totally wackadoodle wrong. Um, but at the same time, you know, at some point, if you, it's, you know, I mean, the date, you've, at some point, you've got to follow the data and you've got to have some confidence in your data. Uh, so credit where we're due for those who got it wrong. I understand for those who didn't get it right. There's a lot of, I mean, this was a messy one. And, you know, and that's sort of the final point I would make on that is something in, in the U.S. and the U.K., things, something really odd is happening with the electorate. The old ways that they used to think about politics and the way that they used to think about the way they used to engage with politics from the way that they vote to the way that they respond to pollsters uh, is changing fundamentally within the electorate. Um, and, and so getting the right process is great uh, and an individual election is great and should be lauded. Um, the next step, I think, for any reasonable pollster is going to be is to try and be as dynamic as the electorate itself. Yeah, and this is something we should probably dive into uh, in deeper, uh, to a much deeper level uh, sometime in the future. We'll get a pollster on to really talk about that. Um, in the meantime, uh, we'll, we'll close out the show. Uh, we promise that this will be our last conversation about British politics, uh, at least for a few weeks, unless something really strange happens. We will go back to focusing on American politics and you know, maybe like we'll just pick a random country and do something on like Micronesia or something just for the hell of it. Um, but that is our show for the week. Thank you so much for joining us, Frank. Thank you very much for your expertise. Uh, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have time to tweet, you have time to leave us a review. So please do that as well. Um, and of course, check us out on Twitter at, at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in polling with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week for Qatar. As tensions rise in the Middle East, it uh, transpired this week that members of Donald Trump's administration believe that Trump may not know that the U.S. has a significant military position in that country. And, I mean, look, who amongst us hasn't lost the odd aerial wing or infantry division? I mean, I know I certainly have. Uh, and, and we've seen how easy it is uh, for this administration to temporarily, uh, let's say, misplace a carrier battle group. Uh, which, you know, again, honestly could happen to anyone. Um, there's only one way to resolve this issue. They, you know, there are people in the administration saying we definitely have a position uh, in the Middle East, but I don't know, maybe everybody in, in Qatar, but I don't know, maybe Trump's right. So there's only one way to resolve this, and that's to get eyeballs on it. We need some people on the ground to report. So we are headed to Qatar to search every nook and cranny of the place for the thousands of apparently missing service people and billions of dollars in vanished equipment. Uh, we will not rest until this mystery is put to bed. Friends, we take ship now for Qatar. Take care, everybody.